one more time before we begin. Father, again, thank you for this night tonight. Thank you for your word. We just pray your blessed time. Give us just attentive ears, Lord. Help us to have not only information, Lord, but application in our lives that, Lord, you change our hearts as we grow closer to you through the study of your word. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we're continuing our study through the book of Acts, we see Paul is he's finishing up his third missionary journey. He's heading to Jerusalem. He wants to make it to the Feast of Pentecost. Last time together, we saw that he was, you know, didn't have time to go into Ephesus, and so he called for the elders of the church there to come and meet him so he could make it to the feast on time. Paul felt that this would probably be the last time that he would see these men, these leaders of the church. So, so he wanted to exhort them to continue in the work, to follow his, his example of ministry. Well, we read last time together in verse 36 through 38 of Acts chapter 20, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Very, very tearful goodbye. Goodbyes are so tough. And that's where we pick it up this evening. Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass that when he had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Again, this Ephesian church had a really hard time saying goodbye because the words that, that we read, um, which is departed from them, it actually means to tear away from them. So just tearing our hearts out. I mean, just, just so close to them. How hard we see it was for them to say goodbye to each other. And over the years, we've had people, you know, coming in and out of the church and they move and it's, it's hard to say goodbye. You know, especially if they've been a part of the church for a while. I, I like to rather say, see you later. Because, you know, that's the hope. We, we may not see each other later on this earth, but man, we get to heaven. There's no more goodbyes. Man, we're always with them forever and, and maybe want to say goodbye. I mean, don't you have someplace else to go? But no. It'll be great to come that day. So this is a tearful goodbye. Paul is now, he's out sailing. We continue on in his trip. He's visiting these churches. Verse 2 says, Finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailing to Syria. It's kind of give you a commentary. On the left was Cyprus there. And look to your right. Uh, for there the ship was, to, uh, they landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her, her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, Paul is he's on his way. He's visiting these churches, ministering to them. But more than likely, these are churches that Paul didn't start. This time, these are churches that were started while Paul was still persecuting the church. So as Paul comes to Tyre, which is modern-day modern southern Lebanon, Paul searches out and finds these believers, not to persecute them now, but now to find fellowship with them. Hey, how's it going? Hey, let's fellowship together. Remember back in chapter 20, verse 22 and 23, or rather, actually, uh, back in verse 4 here, it says that, that Paul comes to this church, and in verse 4 it says, they told Paul through the Spirit to not go up to Jerusalem. So Paul arrives, hey, how you guys doing? Hey, you don't need to go to Jerusalem, he says. Now, Paul would refuse to listen to him and go over there anyway. See, Paul already knew what was waiting for him. The Lord already showed it to him. We know in Acts chapter 20, verse 22 and 23, uh, Paul said, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So for them to say, don't, don't go, man, you're, you're going to just change. The tribulations come, and Paul says, 
I know that. <laughs> I already know that. You know, see, I believe Paul was truly led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, but, but that love for Paul by this church entire made them come to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit's telling you, no, Paul, you shouldn't go. I think it's very easy for us to let our emotions get into the way of doing God's will or assuming something is God's will because we want it bad enough. You know, have you ever done that? Oh, Lord, I know you must have this new car for me. It's got it. Oh, I know it's for me. I have a peace about it. Of course, I can't afford it, and I have debt, debt up to my eyebrows, but Lord, I know it's from you. No, you really want that car is what it is. See, we need to be careful. That's why it's so important to, to really seek the Lord, wait on the Lord, you know, make sure you could break away and spend some time, you know, time alone with just you and, and, and the Lord. You know, maybe it's, it's walking on a treadmill or maybe it's, it's walking in your neighborhood, or, you know, real early in the morning when it's not so hot, but just, just seeking the Lord. Then, Lord, I'm just seeking you and spending the time with him to get what his heart really is here. See, Paul was convinced he should go to Jerusalem and that he would do. And we'll see in a bit, he does get there and chains and tribulations are waiting for him. Well, verse 5, Paul is, Paul is ready to leave and leave Tyre and the friends he made there. And we read in verse 5, When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. I love that it says here that the wives and the children were there and accompanied them out of the city there and that all the wives and the kids knelt on the shore and they prayed together. They all prayed. Now, I love listening to kids pray. I mean, they do say the darndest things, you know, as the old TV show was. Uh, I remember many years ago, my son Joey, he was around four years old and, and he would pray for over the food. Thank you, God, for this food. Help it not to be poisoned. <laughs> now, it's cute back then if we would pray that now. I think uh, Lisa would be a little bit offended over that. But, <laughs> but I love what we see here. You know, just uh, the family's devoted to the Lord. I mean, the families are here. They're, they're accompanying him out and they're, they're kneeling down and they're praying together as a, as a family. Uh, I love the saying, a family that prays together stays together. It's a good one. Something we should all practice. Make whatever arrangements to set apart a time where your family could just come together and pray. So they pray. Paul leaves. Look at verse 7. And when he had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were with were Paul companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with them. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, this is not the Philip, the apostle, but this is the one we met back in Acts chapter 6 some 20 years earlier. Not 20 years ago when we started the book of Acts, but, but uh, 20 years here, you know, uh, since uh, there's been 20 years that has gone on since, since Acts chapter 6 until right now. I think we forget that from time to time. We read the book of Acts and we go, and things happen one after another. No, there's a time period that has gone through. Well, this is Philip that Paul says uh, that he uh, stays with is the one that was a part of the seven, if you recall, that was chosen to wait on tables, Stephen being another. Now, we also remember that Paul was the one holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. And then on top of that, after that situation, Paul went out to wreck, to, to wreck the church, imprisoning those that called upon the Lord. And because of Paul's heavy persecution, Philip uh, had fled from Jerusalem. So this is now the same Philip who no doubt knew that this was the same man, Paul, 
who had a hand in the death of his, of his friend Stephen. Seeing how they, they waited on tables together, I would imagine Stephen and Philip were probably close. They were probably good friends. They had been waiting on tables. They got to know each other. And what I love here is that they're no longer on the opposite sides of the fence, but now brought together as brothers in Jesus Christ. Philip had no bitterness towards Paul. Oh, you can't stay in my house. Or you, you know, None of that. It was all, all gone. There was no grudge. There was no seeking of revenge. In fact, Philip opened up his house to him. Philip knew that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. So they could have this sweet fellowship together. Now we also read in verse 9 that Philip had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now there's a couple of things here. Number one, this speaks of the purity of Philip's daughters. Now, understand, this is an amazing thing here because the town that they lived in, Caesarea, it was a wicked beach town. It was known for its, its sensuous uh, pleasures and, and wickedness. Yet Philip's daughters remained pure even in that environment, even in that culture. I think it's so important today to stress to our families the importance of staying pure, of being pure, of, of not having you know, a fellowship with, the, with those that, that work in darkness and, and, and watching your walk. But not only were Philip's daughters sexually pure, but they're also spiritually pure. They were devoted to God. It says here that they, they prophesied. Now we're told in Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. We see here. And we see that happening here. The gift of prophecy was given to Philip's daughters. And, and now we're told in 1 Corinthians 14 that the gift of prophecy consists of words of edification to build up, words of exhortation to stir up, and words of comfort to cheer up. And I think about this. What a godly family. These daughters were women who were not gossiping or arguing or fighting, but building up, stirring up, and cheering up. I mean, that's what they were known for, as well as God was using them within the body of Christ because we know that the spiritual gifts that he does give us are there for the edifying of the body of Christ, of encouraging the body of Christ. So no doubt they would have regular times of waiting on the Lord and the Holy Spirit would speak through them and they would prophesy and the body was encouraged and the body was edified. The word edify means the act of one who promotes another's growth in Christian wisdom, piety, happiness, and holiness. So what a testimony of these girls. I mean, and truly, Philip is to be commended for being able to teach his daughters in a carnal culture the importance of being pure, both physically and spiritually. Well, verse 10, it says, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, this is the same Agabus we read about in chapter 11 who prophesied of a great famine coming upon the land, and it did. Uh, but here we see, as often was the practice of the prophets, that they, they play out, they play act what was going to happen. And so, you know, they, he gets the belt, you know, and, 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 and you know, takes it and, and says, okay, the guy who owns this belt is going to bind it, probably binds it around his hands. And, and so he's, he's really saying what's going to happen here uh, uh, to Paul when he arrives in Jerusalem. Paul was going to be bound by, by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. And that's going to take place shortly. Now, this would be of God, but the response of the people, as we shall see, was not. Look at verse 12. Now, when he heard these things, 
both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Again, Paul knows he's to go. It's on his heart. And now they're there. No, don't do it. Don't do it. Now, you know, you understand this is logical. I mean, they're seeing their beloved Paul. He's going to be in trouble, maybe even put to death. So by human logic, they tell Paul not to go. You know, love will do that. You know, that protection, that, that love instinct, you know. And, and that's why I think, I, and I believe we see over and over again, the Holy Spirit confirming to Paul, listen, as much as what they're saying, you need to go do this. And I think out of love, I think we can do that for our families. And we can almost become overprotective of our families. I read a story about a couple who wanted to create a safe and secure environment for the children. Nothing wrong with that. Seems very logical. So they moved to the outskirts of San Francisco three weeks before the San Francisco earthquake hit the Bay Area in, in the 1980s. During the earthquake, half of their house collapsed, causing them to logically say, hey, we can't live here any longer. Our family is in danger. So they moved from California all the way to Florida, where no earthquakes can touch them. They moved into their home five weeks before Hurricane Andrew flattened their home. Distraught, devastated, as you can imagine, obviously upset about this. They decided to go on vacation to get away from it all, and they went to Hawaii. Two days before Hurricane Aniki wiped out their hotel. Listen, folks, the safest place to be, no matter what the location, is to be in the will of God. And the most dangerous place to be is outside of the will of God. Just because there's difficult times that come and we go through trials in our lives, that doesn't always mean you're outside of the will of God. God allows us to go through these trials. And we need to, to realize and rely on what Jesus said in Matthew six thirty one through 34 when he said, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He says, But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. For you... Your family, don't seek them first. Don't seek what's best for you or them, but seek first the kingdom of God. And then you can rest in Him and His will for your life. And no matter what comes your way, you're not going to be moved because you're seeking the Lord first in His direction. That's the heart of Paul. As we read in the next few verses, look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So we would not be persuaded, we see, saying, The will of the Lord be done. I mean, this is just the heart of Paul. The, the love of God constrains him, compels him to be walking in the Spirit. Nothing was going to move Paul from the course that God has set for him. Paul from prison in Rome was able to say, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. May that be the passion of our hearts. Lord, I'm going to go wherever you lead me. Now, in the days that this letter was written, there was no punctuation marks. So verse 14 really goes right into verse 15. So when the, he would not be persuaded, verse 14 says, we cease saying the will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed up and went to Jerusalem. I like that. Okay, well, I'm not changing Paul's heart. He's dead set. No use, no use us saying, you know, trying to change really the will of the Lord. Uh, you know, so we packed up and left. I think, again, the will of the Lord may mean persecution. It doesn't always mean no difficulties. It may mean suffering. But it's during those times of persecution, those times of suffering, God causes us to grow in our relationship with Him the most. 
Maybe the Lord has called you to get involved in, in a ministry and you go ahead and you obey the Lord. I mean, I'm going to step out. I'm going to do this. And bam, you're getting persecuted like never before. You're getting trials you're going through. You're getting harassed by coworkers. You're getting made fun of at school. And you're going, what is going on here? Maybe you decide to go out on the go team on Friday night and, and, and it goes horrible your first time out. That doesn't mean you weren't called. That doesn't mean that God's hand isn't in there. It's those times that we grow the most and God wants us to have that, that stick-to-itiveness, so to speak, to stick with it. See, Paul knew what was right, the right thing to do and he did it in spite of opposition. God never said it would be easy, only that he would never leave us or forsake us. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem, verse 16. We read also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain uh, Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Now, possibly this guy, since it's an early disciple, this guy might have even got saved on the day of Pentecost, uh, they say. Verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So, they arrive in Jerusalem. They're there. They get there. This James... We've looked at him before. He's the brother of Jesus, a stepbrother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, and, and the head of the Jerusalem church, not James, the brother of John. He had already been executed. Paul goes into them. He brings the offering that he had for them that they collected for the church in Jerusalem and then tells them of the great things that God had been doing through him and bringing many of the Gentiles to the Lord. Verse 20 says, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. I love that. They didn't glorify Paul. They didn't say, oh, Paul, man, you're doing so great. You're awesome. No, the glory went to the Lord and what the Lord was doing through Paul. Yet they told Paul he had more to do. They said, Paul, you've been been making us a little bit uneasy here. Look at verse 20 again. It says, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And then they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all zealous for the Lord. Law, but they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children in order to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Oh, my. Another conflict here. We've got James. We've got the elders that are present there. And, and they're talking to Paul. And they said, Paul, we hear, we, we hear this is going on. Now, it wasn't going on, but they, they assumed that from the people that they listened to. And so they said, well, Paul, we want you to take this vow. Now, this vow we looked at recently, it's called the Nazarite vow. Uh, during this time, they, they let the hair grow really, really long. They would drink no wine or eat any grapes. They wouldn't touch anything dead. They would just devote themselves to a period of, of devotion to the Lord, a dedication to the Lord. And at the end of the vow, then they would go in to the temple, spend seven days worshiping God. Then they would cut off their long hair and, and burn it and give offering and sacrifices to God. So James, with the elders present, wants Paul to take this, this vow, wants him to take these four men with them, to devout with them. And, and, and because those that took this vow had to take the time off from work to finish up the last seven days of the vow, it was costly, said the St. Paul, and we want you to pay for it as well. 
So James and the elders, they're, they're trying to show these other Jews that Paul still believed in keeping the Mosaic law and circumcision and the traditions of the Jewish faith and, and asking Paul to sponsor and be a part of this ritual. They go on. Look at verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, we know that. He said it a few chapters back, we understand that, but they're saying it again to Paul that, hey, for the Gentiles, this is all we, we want them to keep, but, but this is what we want you to do. Now, Paul could have said, I'm not going to do that. Like, what are you nuts? I'm not going to do that. No, look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration uh, of the uh, days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, what's interesting about this is by this time, Paul had already written his letter to the Romans. He had already written his letter to the Galatians, proving that keeping the law could save no man. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, showed in these letters that the Christian is free from the law of Moses. So Paul has a choice here to, to do what he believes is right, even though he knew that they were wrong, or to do what is wrong, even though they think it is right. Winston Churchill, in speaking at Harrow School, said, Never give in, never give in, never, 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 and nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never give in. Then he sat down. I think there's a number of reasons why Paul went ahead and gave in and agreed to do this. The first one, I believe, is in respect to James. I mean, he was a clear leader of the church in Jerusalem. The writer of the book of Hebrews, who I believe was Paul, writes in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So Paul respected the authority that was given to James, even to the point of doing something that he's going, no, I don't really want to do this, but I'll go ahead and do it. You know, Paul would write in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, that the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. He's doing it. Romans twelve eighteen, Paul wrote, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So he didn't plant his feet, didn't say, I'm not going to do it. He said, you know what, I'm going to keep the peace. I'm going to submit to the leadership in Jerusalem. And there are times in our lives Personally, where it's better to keep the peace than to push our opinion, claim some right that we think we have. Listen, knowing God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above what we we ask or think. I'm sure Paul weighed out the decision. And because of his love for the fellow Jews, thought what harm could come from this. He wanted so desperately to be effective for the Jews in Jerusalem. Perhaps he said, man, if this is the way that they're going to listen to me, then I'm going to go for it. I'll cut my hair. I'll purify myself. I'll go through these, these rituals, even though I know they've already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Just showing this grace and this flexibility. In fact, Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 9.20, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So even though... He knew better. Paul said, okay, that's what you guys want. I'm going to do it. Now, was anything accomplished from Paul taking that vow? Apparently not. On the other hand, everything that was prophesied that would happen to Paul was about to happen. <laughs> Look at verse 27. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law in this place. 
And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they've previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Again, Paul, you're stirring up trouble. So here we see trouble for Paul as the Jews from the Roman province of Asia, unbelieving Jews, stir up these crowds against Paul with these lies. For some reason, they assume that, that Paul allowed this Gentile, Trophimus, from Ephesus to come into the temple, and, and that was not allowed. Not, it's not wise to make assumptions when you don't have all the facts. Understand, the temple, they had different areas in the temple. They had the, the temple that the, the Gentiles were only allowed to go as far as the court of the Gentiles. If they went any further, they could be put to death. Beyond the court of the Gentiles was the court of the women. Then was the court of the men. Then the sanctuary where the priests could go in. And then you had the Holy of Holies where the high priest could only enter once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, and only then after ceremonial washing. And even then, if the high priest wasn't really, you know, it, it, right with, with God, you know, uh, they, they would actually, on his leg, they would tie a rope with a place, uh, they'd have bells on, on his robe, just in case he was unclean, and he would drop down dead when he entered the Holy of Holies, they would no longer hear the bells, and they could pull him out, because they didn't want to go back in there and drop dead themselves. I mean, in the presence of God, in their own righteousness, they, they'd be like filthy rags. But Luke here tells us that this, this statement was not true about Paul. They assume that Paul did this, bring this Gentile in, but he never did this. Now think about this for a moment. Why would Paul go through this whole cleansing of, of uh, the Nazarite vow, you know, letting his hair grow, cutting his hair, bringing these four other men and paying the money, so just to get him to talk about the Jews, about Jesus, why then would he bring a Gentile into the inner courts? It just it makes no sense, no way. But it didn't matter to the crowd. And they were riled up. So they grabbed Paul. Look at verse 31. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander of the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Wow. So they'd been beating Paul this whole time. See, Rome would not allow this kind of activity. They knew that if trouble would arise in Jerusalem, especially during the feast days, it would be around the temple area. So they were ready for it. They show up, and as soon as they, the Jews saw the Roman soldiers coming, they stopped beating Paul. But think about this. Where was the church in all of this? Where was James? Where were the elders? Where were these guys? I mean, the same church that asked Paul to take this Nazarite vow with these four men, where were these guys that sent Paul in? Paul's in trouble, and there's no, they're nowhere to be found. So God instead uses a, the heathen Roman soldiers to rescue Paul, not the church. I think that's what happens when a church, when a person allows legalism and, and, and compromise to, to gain control of their lives. You know, you need to do this and you need to do that or else, you know, well, he's just going to get what he deserves. Or something like that kind of attitude. Lost is the commitment and the energy to bring forth the good news and it's replaced with traditions and, and rituals and, 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 and the... And the I think the church and the individuals become the frozen chosen. Maybe you've heard that before. You know, us four, no more. You know, this is who we think. You know, listen, we need to maintain that passion for the lost and for our brothers and sisters in the Lord that when they're in trouble, when they're struggling, man, we're there for them. We're there to help them, to encourage them, not to cheer on their demise. Look at verse 33. Then the commander came near, to, near and took him 
and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people followed after crying out, Away with him! <laughs> so the Romans, they're just trying to find out what's going on. But the mob is out of control, and, and they're getting in an uproar. They, they beat this man. So this commander asked what happened, and the crowd began to shout, so he, he couldn't hear. I mean, they're all shouting stuff, and everyone was speaking. They didn't know what was going on. So they're all worked up again. They try to bring Paul into the barracks of the fortress of Antonia, and they have to carry him because they're still trying to kill him. Look at verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? <laughs> You've got to love Paul. I mean, he's almost beat to death. His life is in jeopardy, final jeopardy, you might say, and he wants to still share Jesus with this mob of angry Jews. He just never gives up because none of these things move him from the course that is set from his life. So Paul asked the commander if he could speak. Look at verse 37. He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So this guy had a completely different story. He thought this guy, around 54 AD, there was a, uh, uh, this guy, this guy had a following of some 4,000 men and they gathered on the Mount of Olives because he claimed to have power to break down the walls of Jerusalem. When the Roman soldiers saw that was happening, they attacked these people, killing some of them, arresting some of the others. But one guy slipped away. One guy got out, this Egyptian guy. And so this commander thought Paul was that guy. It's got, you got to be the guy. You're, I got the guy. Look at verse 39. Paul said, I'm not the guy. No, he said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission... Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, next week. Next week. How's that for a cliffhanger? Isn't that a, a terrible place to, to break the chapter? But we are going to break here. you have to wait till next time to find out what he said. Or you can go home and you can read it. I gave you just a little hint. It's his testimony. But, but here Paul tells this commander, that he's not an Egyptian, you know, and gives proof by telling him where he's from. Again, here's Paul. He, he's beaten, he's bloody, he's in, he's in chains, and his only desire right then is to share Jesus with those that want him dead, his fellow Jews. Paul would put it this way in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This is in a New Living Translation. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with Himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in Him are made right with God. I love that. We don't, we don't need the law. We don't need all this stuff. And these people, these Jews, the men, they're so zealous for the Lord. They love God so much. They just need to know Jesus as their Savior. And then Paul just had this courageous commitment that stemmed from his strong convictions and his desire to see these fellow Jews get saved. Many years ago, there was an old children's song called Dare to Be a Daniel. I think that's good and all, but I think that someone should write a song called Dare to Be a Paul. 
mean, Paul was totally sold out for the Lord, a man whose chief desire was to do the will of God, to finish and accomplish the purposes that God had in mind for him. Oh, that we would dedicate ourselves to complete that course that God has set for us, that we'd be so focused on that goal to finish and accomplish the purposes that God has for each one of us in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the trials. God is there for us. He's on our side. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night tonight. Lord, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul that, Lord, he was convinced, Lord, to do your will meant for him chains and meant for him tribulation and meant for him persecution. But he did not shy away from that, Lord. He counted it a privilege to suffer for your sake. Lord, help us to not look at these trials sometimes that we go through, these difficulties as punishment from you, Lord, but opportunities for us to glorify you with our lives. Lord, we thank you again for the Apostle Paul example of his heart for the Jews and to see them saved. Lord, give us that same heart for the lost. Lord, to see those family members that we know, those friends, Lord, that that have such a zeal, Lord, maybe an excitement for God, but they don't know you. Use us, Lord, to to bring them into salvation, Lord, to, to share with them. So thank you, Lord, for this night tonight. Thank you again for Jacob and Christina being here and sharing in music with us, Lord. Bless them as they continue to to travel, Lord, and, and give them traveling mercies. And bless our fellowship time afterwards tonight. We praise you uh, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.